Now we're going to open it up to questions. It looks like we might have one. And there's there's no time limit, so we'll answer <laughs> as many questions or as few questions as you want until yeah. until you and, all and, leave. Until you're totally bored. Yes, until you're bored. <laughs> so so do not feel pressed for time. Speaker Jones removed a couple of committee uh, people on the education committee, mm -hmm. uh, Mike Thompson and uh, uh, Representative Gannon. Uh, between them, they had 50 years' experience in the education field as teaching and administrators, and he replaced them with two people who are both homeschool people. I just wonder what you think about that, and how was the reaction among the Republicans to him doing that? Were they threatened by it, or did they revolt against it? Joe, do you want to talk about well, that? I think you wrote well, that a okay. bit. Well, I think the bottom line is that, and Marshall probably is a better expert than me on this, so I won't take too long so he can talk about it. I think that the bottom line shows that it really didn't have much of an effect. What, the reason Jones did that was right after the House had voted down a bill that he had supported that, among other things, uh, curbed teacher tenure and some other stuff. Mm -hmm. That got voted down in the House. There was several dozen Republicans who joined Democrat, which doesn't happen too often, and voted it down. So this happened right after that. The bill came back up, and it got voted down again. Am I correct? Okay. So what they ended up with at the end was they did vote and approve an education bill, but the stuff with tenure and some other things were stripped out of it. I think that he removed those uh, people from the uh, committee in part because well, he acknowledged that it was because they had uh, taken a stand against the bill on the merits instead of the committee they were on. He said it was supposed to be dealing just with the fiscal aspect of it. But the bottom line is, I think he may have been wanting to send a signal to other legislators. And I want to emphasize that yeah. leaders of the House and Senate often do stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I was that. just going to say, earlier in the year, Penny Hubbard, who was a St. Louis Democrat, right. who was somewhat maligned by some members of her party for sometimes voting with Republicans was kicked off a bunch of committees for voting and the, for a bill and um, should, against right. the party. So. so that wasn't the first time. That's and, and he's not the first speaker to do stuff like that. But my point is it ended up not working. They finally did get an education bill through, but the stuff he wanted to get in, his key points, were stripped out so that uh, they could at least pass a bill and he could claim victory at the closing press conference, even though he didn't have those, some of those provisions that he really wanted in it. I think it's part of the overall culture of um, the House, the uh, House that's been elected for the next two years as far as the leaders that are in place, and that is we're doing things my way. You know, that's that's yeah. the message, I believe, that was sent uh, by that. As far as, the, as far as the Penny Hubbard situation goes, um, a lot of that was payback for helping the Republicans uh, with the, the redistricting votes, specifically in uh, 2011. Yeah, she's a Democrat. Um, uh, maybe a little side issue was um, a dispute over the smoking rules in the, uh, in, in the House offices. Um, the minority leader, Jacob Hummel from St. Louis, uh, the, and the other leaders of the, the House Democratic minority got together and said, we're going to set an example and we're going to ban smoking from the offices, inside the offices of each of the House Democratic members. Now, there's no smoking in the state capitol with the exceptions of individual lawmakers' offices. Now, they, can, they can smoke in there. And, um, well, I'm getting off track here, within six feet of a lobbyist named John Britton. I was just <laughs> going to say. <laughs> yeah, he, but this they, is important. That's a, that's a story into a, in and of important. itself. This is important. The point is that what happens to the legislature is often personal. Go yes. on. Yes. But um, so Penny Hubbard was, um, I interviewed her after this uh, vote uh, by the House Democratic leaders that no House Democrats were going to smoke said, uh, we've made this decision together unanimously. I said, all the House Democratic members, no, just, just the leadership within the House Democratic members. Penny Hubbard is a smoker, um, has uh, filtering systems in her office. And, you know, she told, says that she has ways to filter out cigarette smoke in her office so that it doesn't bother visitors and that she should have the right to smoke in her own office. I said, well, will you continue to now that you're forbidden to? She says, I will follow the, I will follow the rules of the leadership 
But um, it, it was clear that she wasn't happy about this, and it wasn't long after that that, uh, that Jacob Hummel removed her from all of her committee assignments. <laughs> and, I think, um, I think that, that the reason was unrelated, but it kind of was a but that, showcase that I they think didn't that get was the reason. Well. I think that was the, the reason that they put out there for doing it. But, yeah, it was, it was more than just smoking, obviously. Yes. And it was uh, less than 24 hours later that Tim Jones had created special committees for her. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, because so, so, yeah, so Tim Jones is trying to. This is how things work in Jefferson yeah, City. <laughs> you know, to help her because he saw she was being maligned by her fellow Democrats. Yeah, hi guys. Two two questions, but um, I've been talking to solar companies about uh, renewable energy, and they're saying you better act fast because there might be a effort in the legislature to throw out Prop C that the citizens once again passed and, and the legislature seems to want to overturn. What do you all know about renewable energy? Is that still going to stay around, the solar that Ameren is paying a third for right now? Prop C, was that the RPS, the renewable right. requirements? Okay. Right. Well, as far as the state, I, I'm not too sure, um, but federally the, the PTC was passed uh, at the beginning of this year, uh, the production tax credits for wind and solar. Um, but as far as statewide, I didn't hear anything about RPS being done away with. RPS is like the requirement that you would have to get X amount of your energy coming from different sort of renewable energy systems. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I am not super well versed on this issue, but I have heard that there's been attempts to basically weaken Prop C over the last few years because from what the proponents of the weakening say that there's no way for them to go with the mandates in it. That's their argument. I'm not saying that is actually what's going on. My, my guess is, and I could be wrong about this, those efforts really haven't, they've, they've kind of maybe gone past one house, but I don't think that they have gone all the way. And I think that those efforts will probably continue just because there will probably be interests that don't want to necessarily comply with that that and it's a statute it's not a constitutional amendment so they can change that in the legislature but looking through the bills that passed this year i didn't see anything specifically on that topic but i would imagine that as things go on that could be a lingering issue i, I hope that answered your yeah, question yeah. Succinctly. and and i was looking through the bills that Amarin has been lobbying for and i did not see any sort of rps adjustments in terms of that and, I, and i'm pretty sure that they would be so it's it's in. it's very possible that it will be coming up, um, and it's something that they could be going for strongly uh, coming up, but not really yet. Well, and part of the thing I'll, I'll say this again: the legislature was so fixated on the gun issue the last couple months of the legislature. Some of this other stuff that they might have been targeting kind of was just pushed aside. Well, we came in a little late, and I'm glad you talked about the gun issue. I didn't. I felt like I wanted to get involved and tell them how crazy they were acting about guns and more guns and all that. At this point in time, lobbying the governor's office is that the thing to do? Surely he's going to veto all these things and well, on guns. It, it and, depends on the bill, okay. because the bill, for example, that declares all federal gun control laws like null and void or whatever in missouri and it, and it bars police from enforcing any of it. i would say that the chances of him signing that are pretty low now but here's the thing he has signed bills that are deemed gun friendly in the past he signed a bill that lowered the conceal and carry age from 23 to 21 i think a couple of years ago maybe last year and that had a bunch of other propo proposals in it or components in it that satisfied the pro-gun lobby um the other things that joe mentioned maybe the the guns and public workers cars i don't know what he would do with that he may sign it he may not he may let it go into effect without a signature or he might veto it just because there's a lot of pressure from well, ordinary it, citizens it's going to be interesting to see what he does with these because i i can already picture the ads right now for whatever he runs for next be it senate or whatever it's Nixon vetoed a bill that would have strengthened your Second Amendment rights. And so it'll be interesting to see what he does. Yeah, I mean, and as, as you know, he's a hunter, and he kind of made, he, he you know, kind of always mentions his, he, he mentioned his gun during the, during the closing press conference as far as his uh, weaponry. So uh, Yeah, I think I got a press release sometime this year that uh, he had gone hunting. Uh, was it Turkey? 
Well, he hit the limit the very first day of dove hunting season. He hit the limit on the number of doves he could shoot. And this was uh, shortly before the uh, Democratic Convention. And there was some jokes in Charlotte about it might have been better if he had not put that out. <laughs> well, this is why you came here to learn about the governor's dove hunting skills. It's, it's pretty clear that he's trying to uh, maintain his, con- his you know, conservative base that he was able to take advantage of when he first was elected governor. But at the same time, he is broadening his appeal to Democrats, especially with uh, taking up the Medicaid expansion bill. You know, he knows this isn't he knows this isn't going to go anywhere with the the Republican legislature, but it gets him out in front of the issue. It gets him face time and it helps to, um, you know, improve his standing among Democrats, not just in Missouri, but uh, Nationally. nationally. And that's that's the key. You know, there's a, there's always been there's been the occasional rumor over the past year that perhaps Nixon would make an an attractive um, vice presidential running mate, you know, option, or perhaps you know running for the U.S. Senate. He will need to if he wants to win another statewide race. He you know will continue to you know shore up the try to hold on to the Republican base as much as possible. Not Republican. I'll, let me just say conservative base. Because he did draw a good number of Republican voters when he uh, was elected governor, but uh, he's he is trying to uh, reach out to more Democrats and you know yeah. get more support in that area yeah, by yeah. some of his actions. Yeah, to shore up his image nationally. If he were to run against Roy Blunt, he'd do that in 2016. Although that's when Roy Blunt's up for re-election. Although Roy Blunt is a very shrewd. I mean, both Blunt and McCaskill are very shrewd uh, politicians uh, who are very. They, they are the brains of their campaigns. I mean, there's yeah. candidates who hire other people to be their brains, and there's people who are the brains of their own campaigns. And it's rather interesting is that Missouri now has two U.S. senators who are known as being the brains of their own campaigns. And of their own. And um, so Nixon, I think, he might be looking at 2016, but unless Blunt stumbles, I predict he won't challenge blunt instead he'll try to be on the short list for somebody's vp candidate list he may even run for president himself but whoever is the presidential candidate on the democratic side they're going to need to have a vp from the midwest because chances are the uh, presidential candidate will likely be somebody from the coast and they're going to have to get somebody from the midwest and there aren't that many uh prominent democrats who are the right age range and the right stature and the, the ones who have Missouri values. That's right. Well. <laughs> Which are better than North Dakota, our main values. And assuming the Democrats hold on to the White House after um, Obama leaves office, then uh, that perhaps makes uh, Nixon an attractive candidate for, say, U.S. Attorney General. He wouldn't be the right. first Missourian to hold that, uh, that office. Yeah, although I think McCaskill is too. But Nixon yeah. also has another benefit. He knows where to say Missouri, and he knows where to say Missouri. Sometimes he says it at the same place. Though. the same Sometimes sentence, even. <laughs> well, I want to ask about what we all, I think, would agree on, that campaign contributions have always forever influenced politics. Mm-hmm. But with the lack of campaign limits, it's just that much more obvious, I think, today, of the influences that money have over decisions in Jefferson City. Uh, for instance, those tax credits. Um, it's obvious why the um, uh, the historic tax credits and the um, low-income tax credits they don't want to touch them. That's where most of their money is coming from. And it's not because Republicans care about low-income people and where they live. It's the builders that are getting the tax credits to do that. Do, you, do any of you feel that there is any way that this House and Senate would, could ever, or even any that would exist, could draw up legislation that could put campaign contribution limits that would be able to be enforced and would work. No. No. And, well. and, and, and here's why. There, sorry. We're sorry to disappoint you. But, but there's a couple reasons why and I think we all answered no so quickly. The first is, first of all, the Republicans were the ones that took off campaign contribution limits in first, I guess, 2006 and 2008. So they, could, they, they control the legislature now by larger majorities than they did then. The chances of them reversing course are relatively low. Um, there has been, I think, some angst about the unlimited system because there is this perception, rightly or wrongly, that when somebody gets a $1 million check, or in you know, Senator Brad Lager's case, the person who called the House corrupt, three donors fund his entire lieutenant governor campaign, <laughs> <Yeah>. essentially, 
you know, there is that perception that they're being controlled by these wealthy individuals. I will say, though, I, not to toot my own horn or, you know, be braggadocious or Go anything. Ahead. <laughs> I guess by making that, that preference, I am doing both of those things. I embarked on kind of a, a, a relatively ambitious campaign finance project where I tried to track the biggest donors, both, uh, you know, in, from Missouri and for both Missouri-based and federal. And the thing that I that struck me most that, yes, there were instances where a lot of these big donors gave directly to candidates huge sums of money. But for federal, maybe they gave somebody 5000 but then they donated a million dollars to a super PAC that did essentially the same thing other candidate committee did. And essentially, you're choosing between a limited system with gaping holes that third-party groups are basically empowered to get as much money as they want, or the Missouri system where it's anything goes, the third parties are still kind of empowered, but most people give to the candidate. Really, I mean, I don't really think if you want campaign finance reform, so to speak, neither of those choices are probably, you know, the best. I guess the best for a lot of people is public financing where, you know, somebody gets a certain amount of money, another person gets a certain amount of money, and I guess it's, it's paid for essentially – I guess through government and system. that won't but that, happen. That that won't happen. But, I mean, you know, they they used to fund the presidential campaigns that way, where you voluntarily <laughs> donated three dollars on your income tax returns, and people still do that. But think about it: how many of the presidential candidates? I think it's been eight years since the presidential candidates have the the major nominees now have, have gone into the system because they can raise yeah. so much more out of it. Now, where this might actually, where your goal of limits that might be enforced may come about from, may not be from the legislature, but the governor has talked a big game about going to the ballot and putting an initiative petition forward. And it would, it would likely pass if it's put on the ballot. Right. It costs uh, a lot of money. But that's the irony. You probably would have to get a lot of big donations to put that on the ballot. And I should note that campaign contributions for ballot initiatives I don't think have ever been limited. No, they've never been. I'm not sure you could because they're outside groups right. and it's a completely different system. And a lot of those initiatives, they're funded by pretty large and narrow interest groups as well. So there's not really a lot to be not cynical about for campaign finance. I think regardless of what system it is, there's just a, there's just kind of this deluge of dread about it. But to, to answer your question, something might come about it that's just probably not going to be from the, the legislature. Yeah, now the governor was asked about this on Friday because he had claimed that this was one of his goals for this session, although everybody knew he didn't have a chance of getting anywhere. And we asked him whether or not he was going to follow through with his threat that he had given made last right at the end of the 2012 when he was talking about the 2013 legislative session that if they didn't do it, he'd go to the ballot box and do it. And he kind of and he said, well, he would support it. He'll be talking to some groups. And it goes to what Chris was saying. He knows that there would be have to have a lot of money to get it on the ballot. And um, while he was threatening to do it, the, what's going to be interesting is whether or not he follows through or if he decides to choose his battles, which uh, Governor Nixon always often does, and whether or not he decides to focus primarily on trying to uh, – press forward on the Medicaid expansion or something else. So I think it, it, it's going to be complicated in whether or not it gets on the 2014 ballot or if they try to wait till 2016, which is the presidential election year, and they may think that they will have more of a turnout of uh, more... Off-year elections often have a more conservative um, electorate in Missouri. Uh, whether or not, and so they may try to do it in 2016 when they think they may have a, a larger cross section of people, depending on who the presidential nominee is. On, on the topic of, of ethics, though, we are the only state that has unlimited campaign contributions and unlimited lobbying gift right. uh, gifts from lobbyists. And I actually have a story going up tomorrow that goes a little bit deeper into our lobbying system. Um, there are essentially no limits on on what a lobbyist can give a legislator. Um, and for the first three months, it was about $450,000 uh, in terms of gifts. So we, we do have one of the loosest systems in the nation. And you can go to our site, and if you go in our search box at the bottom and type in Power Players, Jason's series from a few months ago will come up 
which also was very good. And it's a list of who the biggest donors are. So read both of those systems or we'll be very sad. Yes, <laughs> yeah. sir. Yeah, I was very disappointed in the failure of the Medicaid expansion. And it's like your thoughts on does that have any future next year or on a special session or? No. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry for the quick no again, but um, go ahead. Were you going to? De- definitely and no, uh, you know, special session being called in. No. There, and, there, yeah. Well, for starters, there would need to be a strong consensus for any particular issue for there to be a special session. Um, you know, getting, making sure that the, whatever, whatever people are called into a special session for will get passed. And I think, uh, of course, we saw what happened two years ago when, when that special session turned out to be an utter failure. But as far as Medicaid expansion goes, uh, I mean, you've got, you've got such a strong Republican opposition to expanding Medicaid. The only possible exception to that is the limited Medicaid expansion with reforms that was proposed by Representative Jay Barnes from Jefferson City. Uh, but he had opposition from within, the, from within his own party to even do that. So it, it's, as far as Medicaid expansion goes, I, I don't see that happening. I see that basically still being a talking point for the governor to uh, to right. push his agenda and to expand his credentials around the state. And, and as we've talked about before, this comes down to a fundamental philosophical disagreement that that is not the role of government and that the government should not be doing that. Yeah, were you, were yeah. you finished with your question, by the way? Well, uh, one other thing. Uh, does anyone have any insights on what happened to Ian McCaslin last week? Oh, the, Medicaid, oh, the, the oh, oh, Ian McCaslin, the Medicaid guy? Yeah. He hasn't talked to anybody yet. We've been trying to get him. Different people have been trying to get him. And as you know, Alan Freeman, who's head of the Department of Social Services, uh, announced uh, yesterday that he's stepping down at the end of the month. Um, you wonder if – I posted a story today. The governor put out a statement today reaffirming his support for Medicaid expansion. And I wondered whether or not that was linked to the fact that Freeman – uh, resigned yesterday, and McCaslin resigned last week. Whether or not uh, the governor was doing that to try to calm the waters among some people who may wonder what's going on. I don't want to speculate on why both of those gentlemen uh, stepped down, because um, they haven't talked to anybody yet. But I think that um, I haven't seen any interviews with Nixon about it either. Right, right. Well, well, f- well. Nixon said in his statement today, you know, he was praising. I mean, I'm sorry. Yesterday, when Freeman stepped down, he was praising him and saying Freeman just wanted to go back to uh, uh, help with Grace Hill, which is uh, the health centers that he oversees. Now, I think that the only thing that will change the dynamics on Medicaid, and I've said this for months, is if rural hospitals start closing. Now, I'm not advocating it. I'm not taking sides on it. I'm just saying that strategically, that's the only thing that's going to change the dynamics. The reason that, I mean, they had been warning of that, but then when it came out about a month ago, the federal government was going to delay ending the dish payments. Now, these are payments that hospitals get now from the federal government for taking care of uninsured people who show up in the emergency room. They get a certain amount. The aim of the federal government is to have those go away because they'll be using the money instead to cover people with Medicaid. The idea being if everybody, if these low-income people are covered with Medicaid, there's no reason to also give them these payments. Uh, But if your state isn't participating in the Medicaid expansion and they also lose the payments, that's millions of dollars down the drain. Now, but since the federal government indicated about a month ago that they're going to delay ending those payments which initially the word was they were going to start doing that in 2004, I mean 2014, I'm sorry, that uh, as a result uh, there was less of an urgency in the legislature among rural Republicans who might have been at least willing to listen to it. This is similar to the teacher tenure fight in that if you look at it on paper, uh, most Republicans philosophically would appear to be against that type of stuff, but uh, rural legislators support their schools. They usually have close personal relationships. Uh, they know that the uh, ad- administrators, so they were willing to break with their own party to not create turmoil with their own public school system. I think a similar relationship arguably is with their local hospitals. So if you saw... Uh, the hospitals really leaning on him at the end because of the end of these payments, there potentially might have been a little bit of peel off or there might be next year, 
But as long as those payments remain, I think that uh, I noticed that there weren't that many hospital people uh, lobbying at the end. I mean, yeah, yeah they, they weren't as visible as they had been earlier. And I'll just, I'll just add in another wrinkle. Let's just say that the hospitals are successful in convincing a lot of Republicans to stand out and support Medicaid expansion. There's still a block of Republicans in the Senate who have been adversarial to the hospital industry. Rob Schaff is my favorite example of that. And he's a physician. Who's a, doc, who's a physician who has literally stopped Medicaid expansions in 2009, I think 2000, maybe even before that, in 2008. And I think if he has at least two or three other people with him, no, no pressure from the hospital industry is going to matter to him because he's, he's, he's adversaries with them. He sees them as the enemy. So that's going to be another challenge, even if best-case scenario happens where Republicans change their mind, they're still going to have to get over yet another hurdle. Now, will those people just get worn out and, you know, physically not be able to filibuster that bill anymore? We'll have to see in 2014 or 2015. Yeah, right, right. Yes, sir. Hello. Uh, one of the people I kind of look after his life has been ruined by the state's uh, various positions on uh, minor sex offenders over the years. Uh, first, gradually increasing their punishments and then ending it for him, uh, and then accepting this new federal law that's very, very tough and is just dropped the hammer on them and driven them into poverty. And um, I've been pretty frustrated because each year the state takes it up, but nothing ever happens. And I wonder if anything, any hope of that, any improvement on that subject. It, it did get through the House where there was a change where there was going to be uh, uh, three grades of sex offenders. So, I mean, and so that some, it was, some of it was dependent on age. And that sort of thing. So the idea being that if you had been 14 or something in the, I mean, that it had not been violent, and you know uh, that, in theory, th they would be treated differently, and some stuff could be expunged from their records. But that got stripped out in the Senate. So um, I think there may be an effort next year. I did pass in two different bills. I mean, it was just something I. Uh, notice, but I, I'm not sure. The only the only thing that to. I'm aware of is um, I did, now I had to look it up. Um, there were the there were some changes as far as juvenile offenders right. go. Yeah, right. their that's, names are being removed the, from the public registry. That's that, that's, ex, that's available online to you know the general population, but not to the actual written ones uh, you know within the uh, state offices. And can I ask one more? Sure. <laughs> uh, about the death penalty, <laughs> has there been any? Uh, movement on that there, no, no and i would be surprised if if there is any in any upcoming session there was in, a in there was future. a bill to i think audit the cost of the death penalty that was sponsored by senator joe kevney of st louis i don't believe though that made it past the finish line i would say if there's any stoppage or you know you know you know temporary delay of the death penalty would probably be by a court and probably not the legislature because i believe that's been what's happened in previous years yeah, I would agree with that. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. Good evening, and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk with the public tonight. Well, thank you for sure. coming. Well, thanks. thanks for coming. We got here a little late, but we got here. <laughs> uh, I, I would like to hear more about the impacts of lobbyists um, in Jeff City. I'm a citizen lobbyist. Um, I've, I think, been to D.C. a few times this year and uh, up to Jeff City several times, and actually a group of citizens formed a quasi-lobbying group around an issue that's important to a lot of Missourians that gets absolutely no traction in Jeff City, and that's the monitoring around coal ash sites in the state, which we have a lot of them. It impacts several counties, like 12 to 15 of those. And I'm wondering, um, you know, when we meet with senators and they can't possibly have a hearing on an issue, where, where is that pressure really coming from? And what suggestions do you have for the public to overcome that level of pressure? I mean, even... Some folks that you think would be allies, they don't want to be out front on some of these issues, which is a little concerning to me because it means that um, unlimited 
giving to campaigns and to uh, lobbyist gifts is having a, a pretty significant effect on how we make laws in the state. If well, one thing that I would throw in here is the as far as the um, the nature of most a lot of the lobbyists in Missouri at, in Jefferson City, the institutional knowledge of how government works is probably on their side now more so than on the actual elected lawmakers, and that is because uh, they've been term limited out. Uh, Charlie Shields, uh, who is uh, I don't think he's a lobbyist, but he is a um, he's on the state board of education, but he spent 20 years in office. Uh, Michael Gibbons, who um, was the former president pro tem of the Senate, he's a lobbyist now. Uh, House Speaker Stephen Tilley, lobbyist now. Um, it's amazing that uh, there are a lot of lobbyists that are former lawmakers and that um, they know a lot more about how government runs in Jefferson City than some of the people elected. That's part, that's part of why things are the way they are. And I'll just give one quick anecdote. Um, Joshua Peters is the new, one of the newest members of the state legislature. He was a former aide to Lacey Clay in Washington, D.C. So he's seen what happens in D.C., and he sees what happens in Jefferson City. And kind of pulled me aside, and we talked a lot, a lot of different things. And he was most amazed, even though he had worked as an intern there, how proximity-wise close the lobbyists were. They could just crowd up near the door or go in the gallery or just meet people very close up, whereas in D.C., that type of practice, even in D.C., which has, is, is thought of as, you know, hog heaven for lobbyists and whatnot, that type of practice is seen, as, in his opinion, unheard of. Now, maybe that is an exaggeration, but that just kind of shows proximity-wise how close some of these people are to the legislature. If, if you're ever in the state capitol, just as a, as a visitor, on the third floor, there's that big uh, open, that rotunda area. I mean, it's not the bottom part. This is on the third floor, and it's, you know, between the House and the Senate, and um, it's also open to the... The third floor rotunda. Yeah, yeah, and it's always tons of lobbyists, and uh, when, in fact, if, if, if a bill would pass or fail, like this happened on Friday several times, I'm watching something, and something would quickly get killed or quickly get passed. I was trying to figure out what happened on something. I could run out uh, from the press gallery, which is on the fourth floor, run down to the third floor, grab a couple of these former legislators, and within a minute or two have the story about what happened. And uh, in a couple cases, there was a bill um, that quickly got passed. Uh, this was the Common Core bill. It was the anti-Common Core and I was trying to figure out what was going on, and so because they didn't allow much discussion, and then I ran downstairs because I thought it had passed, because it did pass the House, and I thought that meant it went to the governor because it had passed the Senate a couple months ago. I ran outside to the third floor. A couple of veteran lobbyists who were former lawmakers said, no, there had been an amendment put on it earlier, and the reason they had a quick vote on it was because the House leaders knew that, they wanted to have a quick vote on it, get it out of there so the House members could say they voted for it, knowing that it had to go back to the Senate for another vote. And one of the sponsors, the key sponsor, was John Lamping, who was already on the outs because of this other thing with the transportation tax I talked to you about, and it died. So, I mean, I'm out there asking these guys, and they're going, it's dead because it's going back to the Senate, and there's all these senators who are gunning for him and this other thing, and it's just going to die. And he would, this particular lobbyist was upset. He's a conservative, and he was representing some of these groups that wanted to get it passed by both chambers. But he said that's why there wasn't that much House de debate on it. The House leaders wanted to get it voted and out of there and let the senators kill it. And that's exactly what happened. But, again, it's the lobbyists with the, with the knowledge. There were so many times that I would run out there Collar, of course, I'm old too, and I knew these guys. You'd run out and collar a couple of people and ask them what happened. There's little tables out there. They often sit at tables and they have their phones. Uh, during lunchtime, they'll have these long tables with food out there. The legislators run out and get their free food. I mean, it's amazing. And I was in the Washington Bureau for four years in the early 80s, and I never saw anything like that. There's, it's, I don't know if it's like this in other state capitals, but I can tell you it's very obvious in Jeff City. Well, as far obvious. as 
you know, lobbying gifts and campaign contributions swaying legislators. I, I've been doing a lot of reporting on lobbying gifts, and I have an, another story going up on that tomorrow. And my thought process on, on it, it kind of takes me back to when I was studying political science at, at the University of Missouri. And there's a media theory that we in the media are really bad at telling people what to think about something. We're not very good at it, and we can't convince people what to think about something. But what we are good at is convincing people of what they should be thinking about. And I kind of think it's the same thing with lobbying, that these people aren't very good at swaying you one way or the other, but they do do a very good job of telling you what you should be thinking about in terms of your priorities for the session. I'd agree. I think they frame uh, what is discussed. And so you have like an outcry from people who live near sites saying we want you to at least look at this issue, and the door isn't even open. And I'm assuming that happens across many different issues. And, and speaking to D.C., you can even go to D.C., have an appointment, and then a group of folks who represent some special interest will then suddenly have the time of your senator. And that's happened on four times that I've gone to D.C. So it happens in both, both places, but I agree. I think in Jeff City, there's a sense that the lobbyists are talking to the legislators, and they know what's going on, and so you need a lobbyist to know what's going on. And I would urge people to uh, learn more about that and try to impact that because then they're not serving us, the people. They're serving special interests. And I would love to see a list of uh, the numbers of lobbyists from key um, utilities, from key large businesses we in the state. We actually have that on our website. Great, yes. because I heard uh, Amron doubled the number of lobbyists. They brought in a key legislator from years back to lobby this past year. So they wanted something this year pretty badly. And uh, we heard a lot of different things that were being discussed, and it appears nothing made it through. So that's probably yeah, good. They, they gave about $28,000 in lobbyist gifts for the first three months this year. And if you go to our website at stlpublicradio.org, uh, shameless plug, you can see <laughs> all of those, actually. Thank you very much for the reporting you do. You're welcome. I actually have yes, a question sir. too, uh, uh, and, and just a general comment that uh, one of the things that we don't report or people understand is we get taught physics, not physics, civics, I'm sorry, in grade school and high school, and that's not the way politics works. Politics is an inside game, and if you're not on the inside, you're a civilian on the outside. And there's professional courtesies and accommodations that people give to each other that have absolutely nothing to do with lobbyists and money and all that kind of stuff. You're, you're either an inside player or you're an outside civilian. And in inside games, outside civilians never get accommodated. So the only people that ever get accommodated are the inside players. So if you want to influence politics, you have to figure out how to be an inside player, whether you ever sit in a legislature to hire lobbyists or not. That's how the system has always worked. Now, it has broken down <laughs> terribly because we have so many inexperienced people getting elected. And, and when I was a young man starting to do this, you first had to be a politician before you could be an elected official. And now anybody can be an elected official. It doesn't mean they have any political skills. But that wasn't really my question. Uh, my question is, for the last five years, uh, the state hasn't had an economic development bill passed. And I'm just curious, what is your opinion about the complete lack of influence of the business community, despite all of the rhetoric of taxes and business, that I have never seen a period of time where the business community, in the, call it the establishment, has so little ability to impact an agenda over such a sustained period of time? Well, I think it has to do, again, with the, the whole, I think it boils down to the tax credit fight, where you have a couple uh, people, the state senate, it used to be Jason Crowell and some others, now it's a different group, including Lamping, who are philosophically opposed to it. Now, some may say that they're aligning themselves with some other people, but I thought it was really stark this session, especially the last week, how, and I think it really drove it home to some business leaders like the RCGA, the regional chamber. I think they saw how little impact they had. I think they didn't believe it, 
until they saw that transportation tax proposal, which was very important to them, get killed. Uh, that Wednesday, which was the morning after the filibuster, Lamping's phones were ringing off the hook constantly because they organized a robocall campaign to hound him to back off, and all it did was just entrench him. But and I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that I think the business community is it, it's taken them a while to figure that out that um, on certain things they are not being listened to. I'm not saying they should or shouldn't. I'm just saying they're not. You know, I mean, and part of it's philosophy. There's a strong philosophy among some about how um, government should run, and they don't really care what the business leaders think, even so. That was my point. Historically, there have always been differences, and fundamentally, legislatures, I don't ever believe, operate on philosophical grounds. I don't think, I don't think you could pass uh, uh, Christmas based on uh, philosophy. So it, it, it is fundamentally uh, something has happened differently in the environment that that many other forces are so far on the outside. So I'm just, part of the reason I wanted to ask you guys is whether you, and, and some of you have been a long time observer, and I know term limits have changed everything. But yes, what, term limits what, have changed what, everything. How fun, what's the difference in the chemistry? Because something is totally different in the water now than I've ever seen. That's, that was really kind of what I I'm think part of it is about. part of it is a learning curve, and maybe this is where you know term limits comes in. You have lawmakers who even the, some of them who have been in say this is their third or fourth year, they're still learning how to be a lawmaker. Um, you know, I've you, I've heard the common complaint uh, from uh, well Tim Green for an example, state senator who was just term limited out. He said, you know, you're in this job for, you know, seven or eight years, and by that time you're finally figuring out how to do this job, and you have to go. There's, there's, been, talk of, there's been talk of, you know, perhaps adjusting term limits, and there's been some proposals to do that that would allow, say, um, a lawmaker to spend all 16 years in the House or four in the House, 12 in the Senate, or your, any combination of that, and that would at least give some institutional knowledge um, perhaps of how to be more a more effective lawmaker in that particular chamber. Uh, those bills have not really gotten very far. They've been proposed, I think, for the past three or four years I've seen them. And they would need to be voted by the people because it's a changing a constitutional amendment. Yes. So that's an added difficulty. Yeah, yeah that's right, because they were kind of... It, it's, it's interesting, and, and you've got some national groups who are very supportive of term limits, who have threatened, you know, each time something comes up. Um, some of this, some of the effects were predicted 20 years ago when term limits were voted on in Missouri. And I remember the fight over it uh, in 91. Um, I was working for the Post-Dispatch then. I was writing columns about it. Again, I wasn't taking sides, just kind of writing about the, the, the debate. But what the critics were saying was going to happen, happened. Now, some of the supporters say that the benefits still outweigh the uh, downside because they believe that it does bring in fresh faces. You don't have so many entrenched figures. Uh, you don't have people who are in it so much for power for themselves that it does tend to make them more philosophical. Uh, and that may be true to some extent because one thing I've noticed is that you have more people who are in the legislature who believe a certain point of view, and that's and, and and they're not there long enough for it to change, or if they um, they don't see any advantage to changing. Even if personally they may change, they don't see any advantage to changing their voting record. Many of them ended up ended up either they're always looking ahead for their next job, which may be as a lobbyist, or it may be like if you're in the House running for the state senate. Uh, and so there's always jockeying between two or three House members who are all planning to, to run the next election for a, one state Senate seat. So there's all these um, factors that change things from the way it used to be 20 years ago when you had people who had been in the House, just in the House, for 20-some years. I mean, that's what they did, and uh, for right or wrong. So it's, it's changed the look of it, and I don't see it changing back anytime soon. Oh, okay. Yes, 
Thank you. I really appreciate it. This evening has been very informative. I well, just, thank you for coming. Oh, sure. I just returned to the state uh, not quite three years ago after spending 30 years in Colorado, so there's been a lot of changes for me to Definitely adjust to here. Jefferson City. <laughs> no, just the changes in the capitals. I, I worked in the capital in, in Denver, so it's it's big difference, big difference. So um, I originally was going to frame this question coming from a place starting with Medicaid expansion, but I know you're just going to go, no, 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 no. So um, <laughs> I'm going to take this another direction and just come right out and say, what is with the assault on reproductive rights and justice here in this state? Is it really just ideological, or are they just playing to their base because it's an easy way to get reelected and, and raise funds and turn people out because there's this big contradiction between blocking Medicaid expansion, which limits people's pregnancy options because you've got to have insurance if you're going to expand your family, but at the same time, there's this movement to restrict access to abortion and birth control and reproductive you know, uh, justice options. So I've been gone for 30 years. What happened? I think well, that it's kind of like a, well, <laughs> I, I think in Missouri, especially now, um, being against abortion rights, it seems a litmus test for a lot of legislators in rural areas, regardless of the party. For, and I, I say that caveat because you saw instances last year where several Democrats running for seats in rural areas were out, you know, out anti-abortioning their opponent, saying how much they wanted to restrict abortion. I need those names. Um, <laughs> Terry Swinger was one of them. Uh, Fowler was one of them in, in, in Jeff, you know, Jefferson County, St. Genevieve area. But, you know, I think that it's, it's just assumed, especially in the, in the rural areas, that if you vote in favor of abortion rights, politically that could get you in trouble, which is why every single year or every other year, there's always a bill put forward to restrict abortion further. That's my theory on why I think there are so many of those put there, but I'm sure Joe and others have other other theories as well. This has been a key issue in the legislature going back to the 70s after Roe v. Wade. Yeah. In fact, Missouri in the 80s, um, before these guys were alive and I was <laughs> reporting at the Post-Dispatch, um, Missouri was a real hotbed. There was a lot of huge protests mm -hmm. uh, against mm -hmm. abortion. Uh, some of it was religious. You had Catholic groups and others who were opposed to it. And, and some evangelical groups, but it was particularly militant. Now, it's not as militant now, but it is very um, much ingrained that every year they're going to have some bill. There's going to be something. Now, the governor has let some uh, restrictions go into law without a signature um, or because he's kind of seen the same thing. Other things he has vetoed. Now... I'm wondering, though, if the clout of the um, anti-abortion movement isn't waning just a little bit. The reason being is that this year was one of the first years I'd seen. Uh, for example, there's been a bill, they've tried to get it through several times, which would allow pharmacists and others to refuse to carry uh, certain products and, and based on their... Uh, philosophical or religious beliefs. beliefs yeah. Well, like Right to Life put out something yesterday or today, they were really upset that that died in the Senate and that died in the Senate for the second year in a row. And uh, the Senate, uh, you have some Democrats or, or others who often have filibustered some of this stuff, but the point I'm getting at is that there used to be, uh, going back even eight, ten years, where the Senate leader would move the previous question and, and block the filibuster so they could pass this stuff. And there seems to not, that seems to be happening less. Hasn't happened since 2007. Yeah, so there seems to be, and it doesn't affect just abortion, but that's one of the effects of it. The other thing I've noticed, uh, and I'm not sure why, is that there seems to be more of an open effort on uh, gay rights in the state where you actually had dozens of people uh, legislators who are actually supporting certain things to prevent discrimination. And I thought it was interesting that the movement to restrict abortion still is continuing, although maybe not quite as vocal, but it still continues. There's always something gets through every year. But at the same time, the gay rights movement it, it appears to be 
gaining some momentum in Jeff City. And so I'm wondering if these, where these are headed, if, if there will be gay rights approved before they ever uh, come to some sort of uh, agreement on what to do about abortion rights. Uh, it's, it's fascinating that abortion continues to be a divisive issue in the legislature and they usually pass at least one bill a year on it and this year they did which is on the governor's desk which would require that a woman who goes in to have, get used RU46 for a medical abortion it's two doses now they take a dose in front of the doctor and then they go home and take the second dose because it causes a miscarriage is what it does in early pregnancy and the bill that passed would require them to be in the doctor's office for both doses so they would have to come back and it's unclear what uh, the governor is going to do about that. But even if he vetoes it, there are enough margins in both houses to override it, and it would probably pass with several Democratic votes in, in the Senate and probably, I don't know, five to ten House votes. So, I mean, that's why he might sign it or let it go into effect without a signature because the chances of it getting overridden are very high. Now, they, they may end up going to court. Planned Parenthood or others may go to court to try to block it. Uh, they've had to do that on some other stuff over the last 15 years that where the legislature has overruled the governor. But, the, but every year there's something. Every year there's something having to do with abortion. It's, it's always. Thank you. And you're savvy and seasoned. You're not old. <laughs> <laughs> We're not old. <laughs> kind of follow up on what she talked about a little bit. I, I got the feeling, have the cities, I mean, the Missouri legislature was always rural-oriented. And, and such, but it seems to me, and maybe after that and some of the things you talk about, that now the Farm Bureau and, and the rural folks even have more power than before vis-a-vis -vis the cities. Is that your view? Uh, interesting, um, interesting question. The, um, probably, if you want a good barometer of the rural versus urban um, power swing, I would look at uh, what happened in 2010 with uh, the Proposition B vote, of course, that was the anti-puppy mill uh, bill. Uh, it narrowly passed, and it narrowly passed because suburban, urban and suburban St. Louis and urban and suburban Kansas City and maybe a few, few counties down in the southeast part of the state voted for it. Um, the whole rest of the state pretty much voted no. Now, the, uh, now if, if you remember, uh, Governor Nixon and a number of Republicans and even some Democrats came back one year later and said, uh, this goes too far. We need to put some, you know, we need to put some state regulations over this to make sure that we're not driving, you know, you know, the good puppy breeders out of business. And so some adjustments were made. And, of course, we know that, um, well, I'll, one thing to we'll look out for possibly uh, later this year or in November 2014 the uh, legislature passed another um, resolution that will go before voters uh, no, in November of 2014 called the Right to Farm and Ranch in Missouri. Um, using modern methods, which actually that language was taken out of the bill, but it's still kind of in the title, I believe, on the House and Senate webpage. The, and uh, that could flare up and bring back the, uh, the fight over puppy mills once again. So um, that's... That's something that uh, we'll see come up in 2014. Yeah, and, and also, this is, that's fascinating because I wrote something about it when it passed early last week about the rekindling of the puppy fight, potentially, is that then I heard from some lobbyists, again, the lobbyists know all, um, who were telling me that actually because of that, that language of modern methods, that there's already some talk among opponents they're claiming that they may try to say that this would also be used to justify certain types of, um, of, I'm trying to get the words right, like the stuff that Monsanto uses and others, some genetically modified uh, crops. And I, I want to emphasize, I'm not taking sides on it. All I'm saying is, is that some of the critics of the ballot initiative are going to raise the specter that this actually would allow more genetically modified stuff, and they actually think that they might be able to, that may be a more volatile issue, and help them defeat it, or at least try to defeat it, as opposed to the puppy mill fight. That, that, that ballot initiative in particular will be a rare instance where I think both sides will be well-funded. There will probably be pro-side 
that is funded by agricultural interests that are mad at the Humane Society because they were the people that brought forth Proposition B, and I do believe that the anti-side will be well-funded because the Humane Society and other animal welfare groups will see this as an instance where if this passes, their ability to pass legislation will be curtailed significantly. That's actually relatively rare in Missouri where there's a well-funded yes side and a well-funded no side, so stay tuned next year because you're gonna get a lot of mailers from that. And there may be, as I said, some of the anti-genetically modified uh, food <laughs> activists, potentially some groups may come in and again, try to make this more than just about puppies. Yes, sir. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about Jill Shoup replacing Lamping. Does, would she have a good chance? Well, that's a good question. And, or, and yeah. one other question. Sure. Uh, I, I read the Missouri Constitution says that we're mandated by the Constitution to support education. I can't remember the last time that the foundation formula was fully funded, yet they're going to cut income tax. It makes no sense to me. Well, let me deal with your first question okay. at first. Um, not to break any news here, but there are lingering rumors that Lamping may not run for re-election. I can't confirm that. He did not answer that question he when I asked him directly. Now, lobbyists are claiming that he's still... But that's... Imp- <laughs> um, the, the, and I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to speculate, but a lot of it may actually have to do with him going home and just being with his family and professional life more. It has nothing to do with... He's not going to run for Congress or it, something else. I don't know. No, no. But, but here's the reason I mentioned that. If that actually goes forward, you could have a raft of different Republicans trying to replace him in the primary. Jill Shoup has been mentioned commonly as the potential opponent in On that district. On the Democratic district. side, yeah. And I think, that, I think no matter what, that district, I think, is, is a slightly or more than slightly Democratic-leaning district. So that, that was going to be a competitive seat no matter what. But it's not as Democratic as it was before redistricting. It was at a, I think it was almost a 60% Democratic and seat before. And now it's like 54 is what uh, lobbyists are doing. <laughs> so the reason I bring that up is if, if it's somebody, it, it, that changes the dynamics of the race. We don't know who the Republican opponent could be. I, I can't tell you what would happen because it could be a situation where the Republican opponent is extremely weak, can't raise money, and says something like Todd Aiken did and alienates yes. everybody in Creve Corps and town and country and everybody else in the 24th right. District. Or they could be an extremely good candidate like, I mean, this may not, you may not like the, this, this observation, but John Lamping won a race in an almost 58% district. He was probably one of the better Republican candidates to run in that district in, 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 2010. in 2010. And, you know, if it's a candidate that is really, really strong, can raise a lot of money or self-fund, it'll be a competitive race. But I think it's going to be pretty similar to 2010, where it would probably be decided by one or two percentage points. Does that significantly and There's going to be a lot. There, Jane Cunningham may end up trying to run in that district. There, there could be, I mean, well, she would have to run for something else. But the but the but point being, because she was knocked out. Right. Um, but there are other um, Republicans, some of who live in the district, some who live close to the district, who might move into the district. Uh, I mean, I I can think of about half a dozen Republican House members who might consider running in that seat. Yeah. So. So we'll, we'll, I guess we'll go to your second question. If yes. That's what about f- funding the foundation formula for education? Well, they, they, keep, they keep raising the amount of money going to K-12 through schools. Uh, you'll hear both Governor Nixon and um, Republican lawmakers say we're, we're spending historic amounts of money on K-12 through schools, and they are. They are spending more money than they've ever spent before, but it is still about, is it roughly $600 million short of what the foundation fum- formula calls for, I believe? Is that the, about the right number? $600 million, I believe. So it's, it's, um, it, it's all about... Um, doing what I guess deciding how much you want to spend where or what could what can you afford to spend where and it it, it always sounds good when they raise uh, education spending but uh, like I say it, it's still not fully funded and I don't see it being fully funded anytime in the near future and and I and just to kind of clarify for your first question it's very possible John Lamping may run for re-election and I, I would still go back to the, the the conclusion I made before that it'll be a close race regardless of whether he runs again or regardless of whether there will be a different opponent. 
we think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Yes. All right, guys. Well, we better close it out. Thanks for sticking with us for, for yes. 90 minutes. Thank you so much for, yeah. for coming tonight. We can't tell you much how much we appreciate it. close this out here. You can read all of Marshall and I's stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. You can follow Marshall on Twitter at uh, MarshallGReport. But don't expect anything from me for the next week and a half. I'm taking He's a on uh, vacation. vacation. <laughs> After <Lucky> tonight. <laughs> vacation. You can follow Joe on Twitter at jmanis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. J. Rosenbaum. And we'll be back next week. We record this every week, just most of the time not in front of an audience. You can find that on our website, or you can subscribe on iTunes. But thanks for coming, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.